So Romans 3, verse 9, let us hear the word of our God. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands, there is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside, they have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb, with their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Now, as we uh, begin here today, I want to ask this rather simple question, but uh, maybe one we haven't thought as much about, possibly, and that is... Have you pondered how much you enjoy when you sin? Let's think about sins of the tongue a moment. When we're gossiping, isn't it rather enjoyable to be the one in the know? Either giving the knowledge or receiving more knowledge? Or maybe if we're boasting... Isn't it rather enjoyable to make ourselves feel so superior to everybody else? Or maybe if we're critical of somebody else, the opposite of boasting, maybe we're putting somebody down. Again, the goal is to make ourselves feel better. We enjoy that a bit, don't we? Maybe a lot. What about sins of the flesh? The one that uh, usually is excused, of course, is uh, the, the, the fleshly sin of indulging in food. We all do it. We'll probably do a lot of it here the next week or so. Uh, but uh, we enjoy eating too much, don't we? Certainly when it comes to fleshly indulgences sexually, it makes us feel alive. Hey, maybe those who uh, are workaholics. We enjoy working, even if it's at the expense of our family or others. Or maybe those who enjoy watching TV, watching sports, or their favorite program, or video games, or something like that, surfing on the web or something. You know, the, the enjoyment that we gain from sinning, from instead of maybe playing a video game for 20 minutes, it's, you know, four hours later... We've enjoyed that, getting the next best score, defeating somebody else we're playing against or whatever. Well, with this in mind, we come here to uh, this verse especially. And Paul is bringing in another aspect of our sinfulness. And this is very much a part of it. Now, the main idea that Paul has been giving to us, beginning in chapter 1, verse 18... And continuing now here through chapter 3, verse 20, is this. God's wrath is revealed against all sinfulness. And his wrath is revealed every day 
against those who suppress the truth about him and turn to idols. And in the end, that's all of us. God's wrath is manifested when we indulge in sexual and social sins, as Paul says here. And then we face the consequences of actually doing those sins, too. In chapter 2, Paul has said that God's wrath is revealed against those who do not appear to be quite so sinful, who present themselves as moral people, who seem to be good. But Paul says those critical holier-than-thou people fail to realize that their less sins are due to God's kindness, not because they're better. Paul has also said a few other things. For example, he has taught us that everyone knows that God exists, and everyone knows many truths about the true and living God because God has made it clear in the things that he has made. Paul has also informed us that everyone knows God's standard and that we must be perfect. Some have it in his word, others don't, but everyone has his law written deep within our souls. And so nobody can say they don't know God. Nobody can say they don't know the God of the Bible is the true God. And nobody can say they didn't know what God expected of them and that he demands perfect obedience to his law. Even the worst of sinners, even the most hardened atheist knows these truths deep down. The one who has the most severely seared conscience still knows what God expects of them. Now, Paul also turns to God's people, and he says that God's wrath is revealed against them too. And he says that external religious activity cannot turn away God's wrath. And it's because we are a bunch of hypocrites. We trust in ourselves. We don't practice what we preach. We look at outward religion as our trust rather than God. Now, Paul does give us a glimmer of hope at the end of chapter 2, saying only those in whom the Spirit works can be spared God's wrath. Now, as we've seen here in chapter 3, verses 1 to 8, Paul turns to address some objections to his teaching. And first, he said, that uh, addresses this question, if outward religious activities are useless to spare us from the judgment, then why bother doing them? And his response simply is, God's gifts are always a blessing, at least in some way. And then secondly, the objection is, if our lack of faith results in wrath, then does not this indicate that God is not faithful? That he has not kept his promises? And Paul says, absolutely not. We are the problem, not God. And then as we saw last time, if our sinfulness leads to God's glory, does this mean that God is unjust to punish us since we've been so useful to make him look good? Or should we just sin more to make God look more glorified and holy and righteous and so forth? And Paul says, absolutely not. God is never unjust in any of his judgments. If that were true, then God would not be God. And he says, the ends do not justify the means. And so we cannot just go about sinning to make God look good. That makes no sense. All right, now, as I've said, these are four objections to Paul's teaching. And they are objections because in the end, we do not want to accept the ideas that we are as sinful as we really are. 
But let me pause and say this here as we transition to the next section. Humble questioning, asking questions to try to understand, is an acceptable thing. Paul's addressing those who don't want to understand. They're just wanting to object. But those who are seeking to understand, there is a place for that. And so a couple weeks ago or so, right, I addressed this. Religious activities don't save, but they are good for God's people especially. Or we can put it this way for the second objection. The father whose son was possessed. Remember after the transfiguration, there and Jesus comes down and the disciples couldn't cast out this demon and so forth and and Jesus rebukes them for their lack of faith and as Jesus did so and he spoke to the father of this this boy um, the man says I believe but help my unbelief certainly we can do this as we ask questions such as these when <clears throat> wrath comes upon us let us not blame God. Let's ask him to help us in our unbelief. His wrath is always justified. And so whether it's a hardship I am facing or someone I care about, whether we're talking about thousands of people dying in the war, whether we're talking about rulers who are unjust or a culture that is going crazy or whatever it is, we can ask the question, why has God planned all this? This just doesn't seem very fair or just or anything like that. But in the end, the answer is the same that Paul gives us here. God's character does not change. God is always just. He is always good. We can always trust him. God never does anything meanly or unfairly. He does not enjoy watching us suffer. His plan is always perfect, and it always glorifies him. The question is, are we going to submit to that idea, or are we going to object to it? Okay. The reason for God's wrath is because I have sinned. I am a sinner. We live in a sinful world. Now, how God is fully sovereign and I am fully responsible for my sins, we cannot fully explain how that works. But the Bible presents it to us. Both are true. And there are a number of places where both ideas are put together in the same verse. Now, we can give other things to try to answer these kinds of questions, but in the end, what it amounts to is, are we going to trust God and who he says he is here in the word and what we see about him in the world? And are we going to acknowledge our own sin? This is ultimately where we need to be. Now, this extended review here is to help prepare us for this final section. And in God's providence, we have some people who haven't heard what I've said in the previous weeks here today. But we come here then to verses 9 to 20, this last subsection. And as I said earlier, let's focus on verse 9. Because Paul gives us another very important idea here. And so let's read it again. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. All right. Now, first of all, notice that Paul gives us two questions. 
Okay? The first one's pretty straightforward. What then? Okay? Uh, what should we conclude about all of this? This is Paul's way of bringing us back to his main point. We had the tangent of the objections in verses 1 to 8. Now he's bringing us back to what he's been saying about God's wrath being revealed. Now recall that Paul is writing to the churches in Rome. However many there were, 10 churches, 50 churches, whatever it was, he is writing to these churches, and they are comprised of both Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, which is obvious from what he's been saying here. Um, and surely based on what Paul has said and what he's going to go on to say between Jews and Gentiles, what he's going to say there in chapters 9 to 11 later on, uh, there must have been some debates. And it's quite possible that the Jewish Christians were saying, well, we are better because we've been part of the promises for thousands of years. For over 2,000 years, God promised to Abraham to send a son and so forth, and, and all who have descended from Abraham. And so we're part of that. So we are better then, right? And the Gentile Christians, right, they're, they're just newbies. I'm glad they're a part of things, but they're not as good. They're, they've been excluded until recently. You know, something to this effect is probably what Paul is addressing. So this brings us then to the second question that he asks. And the New King James puts it this way. Are we better than they? Now notice, than they is in italics here, the New King James, which means that's not actually in the Greek. The Greek literally says, are we having the advantage? And if you have another translation, it may say something like that. Well, <clears throat> this in and of itself, uh, we could spend a lot of time on. There are at least five views historically on how to understand it. And one of the challenges is this is just one word in the Greek. So what does it mean? Well, I would agree with those who would say, are we having the advantage is the best way to translate it. And in terms of meaning, we must refer to the Jews. Okay? Are we better than they? Are we having the advantage? In other words, are Jews better off than the Gentiles? Do we have more advantages and so on and so forth? All right, let's turn to Ephesians chapter 2 here a moment. We read this uh, a few moments ago. And I do uh, intend to make reference back to it here in a little bit. But first of all, notice the pronouns that Paul uses in Ephesians. In chapter 2, notice he uses the pronoun you, and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, and once you once walked, and so on, right? And then in verse 3, among whom also we also conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh. And then note how he ends, we were by nature children of wrath just as the others. So who's Paul talking about? Well, look down at verse 11. Therefore, remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh. So you in Ephesians, okay, obviously he's talking about the Gentiles. The we then would refer to the Jews. Because note what he goes on to say there in verse 11. You have the uncircumcision, you have the circumcision. You have those who are without Christ, aliens, strangers, <coughs> excuse me, having no hope without God. But now have been brought near. And so then in verse 14, he is our peace. He has made both one. In other words, Jew and Gentile. 
okay, in Christ. So um, Ephesians here, I think, gives us some direction in Romans. But even in Romans 3, verse 9, I think it's fairly straightforward. Note what he goes on to say. Right? We have previously charged both Jews and Greeks. They are all under sin. So uh, I think this is how we should understand it. And Israel did have advantages. We've talked about that. Hey, they had the law of Moses. They had circumcision, is what Paul emphasizes in chapter 2. Remember what we saw in verses 17 to 20? Hey, all these advantages. Remember we also looked at chapter 9 and talks about the adoption and the glory and the promises and the fathers and all these things that God had given to the Israelites. Those are advantages. Now Paul was saying those advantages don't save you. But they are advantages nonetheless. Now, let me just briefly say this. Some people try to take this word to mean, uh, you might say, the opposite. Okay? Some have tried to take this to mean, are we better than others, right? Do we have an advantage? And Paul says, not at all. In fact, you have a disadvantage, O oh Jews. And there is some truth to that because, <clears throat> as we see in First Peter, for example, Judgment begins in the house of God. When we have privileges, when we have blessings, we are held to a higher standard of responsibility. Okay. But even though there's some truth to that, I don't think that's what Paul's emphasizing here. What Paul's emphasizing here is simply this. Are Jews at an advantage? And his answer is, not at all. Now, you may remember from verses 4 and 6 that Paul gives us the strongest way to say no in Greek. Right? May it never be. Certainly not. Absolutely not. Well, he words it differently here. And he only uses this wording twice in all of his letters. But it seems to have the same kind of force. Okay? By all means, no. The Jews don't have the advantage. No in every way, you might say. They do not have the advantage. They're not worse off either. Now, why? What's he thinking? Well, notice his answer. He gives for as our next word. The reason why Jews do not have the advantage is we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. Here's the answer to his question. All right, now... <clears throat> Um, let's try to break this down a little bit. We have previously charged. First of all, let's look at the word previously. Um, when did Paul do this beforehand? Um, well, remember, um, Paul had never been to Rome, so it's probably not talking about, right, a previous visit, like, say, he went to Corinth on multiple occasions, He'd never been to Rome before, so it doesn't seem to, to refer to that. Uh, we have no knowledge of him writing another letter. So I think we need to see that Paul is referring to what he's already said. In chapter 1, verse 18 through chapter 2, in particular, what I have already said, I have already charged that Jews and Gentiles are all under sin. I think that's how we need to understand this. Now, let me also then have us look at this word we. Notice it can't mean the same as the previous one. 
It would make no sense to say, for Jews have previously charged that Jews and Greeks are all under sin. That, that wouldn't make any sense. Okay. The we now in this case is referring to Paul and all who would teach the same idea. And so this would be the other apostles. This would include people like me today and others who would teach the same things. Okay. So, what is his charge? We have previously charged everyone. All right, now, the charge is against everyone, he says here, Jew and Gentile or Greek, everyone, all people, and the charge is that everyone is under sin. Now, this word for charge is something you would use in the courtroom, even today, right? They bring charges against uh, the... Uh, the defendant and so forth, and the, the plaintiff would bring their charges and the, ju the judge or the jury would have to evaluate and so forth. Paul here is entering a courtroom, you might say, by using this language. And he is saying that everyone is guilty, is under sin. Now, since he previously talked about this, he says, let's use the language he used before. All who suppress the truth. Jew and Gentile do this. All who worship idols, all who worship the creature rather than the creator. Right? Israel did this, didn't they, multiple times with their idols. Gentiles, of course, have done this. We do too with the idols in our heart. All who criticize others. All who fail to obey perfectly. All who have God's law in their hands, as well as all who have God's law in their hearts. All who are God's people, whether Jew or Christian, all who have God's word, all who have our religion, all who have circumcision, all who have baptism, and even all who object to all the ideas Paul's been talking about. There are no exceptions, Paul is saying. I have previously charged everyone, and we certainly have seen that, haven't we? Now, here in verses 9 to 12, if you add up all the times he uses the word all or no one or not one or something like that, nine times just in verses 9 to 12, he says all in one way or another. No one is better off. No one is worse off. All are under sin. Now, I've been telling you that all along. You, me, everyone, Jew, Gentile, black, white, male, female, those who don't want to decide, you name it, everybody is under sin. No exceptions, except for Jesus, of course, but we're not there yet. And so he says, all are under sin. Now let's talk about the word under. All are under sin. Now it is true for us to say, that when we sin, that sin weighs us down. Surely, when you sin, when I sin, we are pressed down by the evil of that sin and the consequences that we face from the sins that we have committed. It crushes us like a heavy object on our shoulders. And we might see this especially when we become addicted to a sin. But I think it applies to any sin, even if you've only done it once even if it's so-called a small one. 
But when we think of addiction to sinful behavior, we can see it most clearly. So if you're addicted to pornography, this can be such an incredible burden. It can be very hard to get out from under it. Or if you're addicted to letting your tongues wag freely, criticizing, boasting, gossiping, slandering, this can be an incredible burden for the person doing it as well as everybody else. Or maybe your particular sin, your addiction is you like people telling you you've done a good job. And so you go out of your way to get praise. That too is a sinful thing. And that too can become a burden, especially if you don't get that praise for one reason or another. And so we can talk about being enslaved to these kinds of sins and certainly many others. We can also talk about being under the weight of sin when we talk about its consequences. And so even if it's just one sin we've committed, and, and, and yet the, the extent of the consequences are, are, are so vast. So you think of someone who's had an affair, and the consequences of that one act can affect you the rest of your life. Look at what David did with Bathsheba, for example. It can lead to distrust at the very least, if not divorce, and children, ha- children having to decide which parent to stay with, and alimony, and on and on. You lose your friends and your job, and, and so on and so forth. When Paul is talking about all of us being under sin, this is part of it, right? We've all been there, haven't we? We've all experienced this. But if we were to stop here, we would be missing what Paul is wanting us to see. Because he wants us to see more than this. In light of Paul's words prior to and following, Paul is also telling us that we are slaves to sin as a power. We are under sin's dominion. Sin is not merely something we do or fail to do. Sin is a master a power, and he is not nice like the true God. Now, ultimately, this begins with Adam. Okay? And Joe, I think in his prayer earlier, mentioned about Adam. All right? Adam's act of sin represented everyone, and Paul's going to expand on this idea in chapter 5. And he says that everyone is guilty because of Adam's sin. Everyone is corrupted because of Adam's sin. Everyone is a sinner at birth. That's why we sin. And we have no choice in the matter. We are born in bondage to sin. That's why we actually sin. There is no age of innocence. As I've said at different times with little Abby, As cute as she is, she is not innocent. As David says in Psalm 51, in sin my mother conceived me. At the moment of our conception, we are in bondage. We are slaves to sin. As we read in Ephesians 2, verse 3, we are by nature objects of wrath even as the others, Jew and Gentile, by nature, this is what describes us. We cannot change this. 
We're slaves. We're in bondage. And so we must be set free. We must be born again by the Spirit. But I get ahead of myself here. But do you see where this is leading? We, Paul right now is saying, we're, we're just slaves. We're, we're chained up and there's nothing we can do about it. Now, <clears throat> some of course don't like this point. I think Joe mentioned this in Sunday school, right? Uh, the view that, uh, well, there's still some uh, principle of goodness within us that uh, enables us to choose Jesus or something like that. Or how, how could God give us requirements if we can't keep them? But that's the point. <laughs> we can't keep them so that we won't trust in ourselves in any way. Now, this is the first time that Paul says it this way in the letter. But I think it's more for clarification than anything else. We have been focusing on the actions of sin. But Paul is saying it's more than that. Paul previously said we all do sinful things. But it's because we are bound to sin's power. That's why we need the Spirit at the end of chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. Now, Paul's going to develop this idea of power, this power change, you might say. He's going to say many things about it in chapters 5 through 8. Here, he's just touching on it briefly. But right now, he is saying this idea. And so it's bad enough that everything we do and say, everything we think and feel is imperfect. Right? We call this total depravity. Right? Every aspect of who we are is depraved. Okay? Um, but it's even worse. Because we never can do anything perfect unless we are set free from our bondage. We are captives, not in Egypt, not in Babylon. Not merely to particular sin either. But we are in bondage to sin we call this total inability. But there is another step. There is something that's even worse than that. The even worse is, is this idea. Not only are we unable to set ourselves free, we don't want to be set free. We are not a prisoner in prison trying to escape. We are not trying to find something that will get the chains off of our hands and our feet. We are prisoners to sin and we like it. We enjoy our slavery to sin. You remember Israel after they were set free from their bondage? They wanted to go back. That's where we are too. Even when they went into Babylon. <clears throat> hey, after a period of time, Israel started coming back to the promised land. Remember Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah, the three different stages and such? Well, there were some Israelites that never returned. They liked their slavery. And that's us too. It's like we're swimming in a cesspool of pig slop. Hey, manure, just, you know, a pot. You know how it gets when it's rainy and such. You know, it's just a mess. 
But that's where we are. We're swimming in it and we like it. We don't want to get out. So let me put it in this way and using the language of Ephesians 2 in this process. You know, some people say when we're talking about how sinful we are, they say that we're just, we're pretty good. We're, we're well, we're not perfect. Yeah, they'll acknowledge that, but, but we're well. And Paul's saying, no, you're not. You're a slave to sin. You're under sin. And others say, well, okay, yeah, all right. But, but we're just sick. We're, we're slaves who want to get free. And, and we can't get free ourselves. And, and so we need to go to Jesus to ask him to help us. But, you know, we really want this. And Paul says, no, not at all. You are dead in your sins. You are slaves with no desire for freedom. Your cruel tyrant is your friend, We enjoy sin. As I said earlier, gossip makes us feel superior. Sexual sin makes us feel alive. Selfishly soliciting those attaboys, boy, that's really encouraging. Next time you sin, pay attention to how much you're enjoying it. And so don't fall into the lie that you really wish you could obey, but you just can't. Paul will address that question in Romans 7, and he's talking about a converted person. We'll get to that. But right now, he is saying you're a slave and you like it, and that's true of all of us, Jew and Gentile. No one has an advantage. No one has a disadvantage. None of us have any hope. None of us have a hint of goodness. None of us have a power to change it in and of ourselves or even want to. Let me read here a moment. This is from James Montgomery Boyce, and here's how he says it. Most people are willing to admit that they are not perfect. It takes an extraordinary amount of arrogance for any mere human being to pretend that he or she has no flaws. Generally, we do not do that. But this is far different from admitting that we are utterly depraved so far as our having any natural ability to please God is concerned. We are willing to admit that we are not perfect, but not that we are not righteous. We are willing to admit that there are things not known to us, but not that we are devoid of all spiritual understanding. We are willing to admit that we wander off the true path at times, but not that we are not even on the right path. Instead of admitting that we are running away from God, we pretend that we are seeking him. It is vitally important that we come to terms with this badness in ourselves where we want to run from the truth. Without an accurate knowledge of our sin, we will never come to know the meaning of God's grace. And I would just add to his list there, until we come to terms with the fact that we like sin, we will not see our need for grace. And so don't buy into the lie that You just wish you could do better, as you don't want that, and I don't either. Remember in the book of Judges, the people would cry out for help. Only once did they actually repent of their sins. 
They were just tired of the bondage, but not of their sin. That describes us too. It is only by God's grace that any of this is going to change. So again, Paul is pressing this point upon us. All right, now, we will sing of a better end, but we will stop with these words of Paul here in this way. Let's pray together. Our Father, our God, we thank you for your word, especially this word that is something that we would certainly rather not think about. Lord, we pray that you would help us to recognize how much we enjoy sin and enjoy slavery. And it's not just people who vote for bad politicians that enjoy slavery. We do too. We enjoy our sinfulness and the bondage to our sinful master. Lord, help us to see it, that it might point us to Christ. Point us to your grace. We pray, Lord, that you would be merciful in this way, that we would not fall prey to all the excuses to make us seem that we're not as bad as we are. Lord, we um, are so grateful that this is not the whole story. But as we will um, sing here in a moment, we know of your amazing love through Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we um, pray that this also would uh, strengthen us and encourage us. And we pray all these things then in Jesus' name. Amen.